Welcome to Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. Tonight on Socolor Radio, Dana Joya discusses in dynamic and cogent terms why the arts matter. The power of art, he says, is to open up possibilities of existence that otherwise never touch everyday life. As chairman of the National Endowment for the Arts, he says that we live in a society and economy which does not support the arts at any public level. Joya contends that artists and intellectuals themselves are partially to blame for not communicating the reasons why art matters to the broader community. He argues we must encourage arts education not to produce more artists, but to provide for the complete human being. If the U.S. is to prosper in the 21st century, Joya says it will be through creativity, innovation, and ingenuity, all nourished by the arts. Recorded before a live audience at Barnsdall Art Park as part of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, here is Dana Joya. Good evening. It's, it's a pleasure to be back in my hometown. I thought I would do three things this evening. I wanted to introduce myself in, in less formal terms. I wanted to talk a little bit about the NEA and what it does, but I want to use those basically as a preface to talking about a larger set of cultural and social issues that we're facing in the United States, and then afterwards we'll have some questions. I'm uh, a working class Latin kid from Hawthorne. Those of you who have not been to Hawthorne personally have probably seen Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction or Jackie Brown, two films which capture the charm of my, the neighborhoods in which I grew up in. I was uh, you know, raised in a family that was Mexican on one side and Sicilian on the other by people who basically, nobody above maybe 25, spoke English as a native language. And it was a good, it was a good way of being you know, brought up. You know, it was absolutely perfect to prepare me for the 12th century. Uh, and uh, it was strange because, you know, the, the, you know, the people, the, you know, they had come here because, you know, Sicily and Chihuahua, Mexico had been hard places to live. And they came here to create a new life. I mean, classic immigrant stories. And they had, you know, in a sense, a basic set of aspirations. But I, my mother was a little unusual. I mean, she was a working class Mexican woman. But she loved poetry, and she knew many poems by heart. And I uh, grew up, you know, with her reciting poems to me, or just somehow, you know, quoting them. I mean, suddenly she would say, "It was many and many a year ago, in a kingdom by the sea, and a maiden there lived whom you may know by the name of Annabel Lee. This maiden she lived with no other thought than to love and be loved by me. I was a child, and she was a child in this kingdom by the sea." And we loved with a love that was more than a love, I and my Annabelle Lee, a love that the winged seraphs of heaven coveted her and me. And hearing this, you know, I had a, a response that was really out of all proportion, I think, to, you know, what most people would feel. I mean, to use a classic line from another context, I realized at a fairly early age that I was different from the other boys. But in this case, it was that, you know, when I heard a poem or a piece of music, it had this sense of awakening me in terms I couldn't even fully understand. I realized today what it did, and I think this is the power of art, especially art uh, in education, art for young people, is that it opened up possibilities of existence that never t otherwise touched my everyday life. And, and so, you know, I didn't know any artists. I, you know, I don't think I knew anybody but the optometrist who had ever gone to college. But and I knew somehow I wanted to hang around this stuff. I was lucky to take uh, piano lessons at my parochial school for from Sister Camille Cecile, who was of you know, the ancient belief that piano could not be taught separately from uh, you know, physical punishment, uh, <laughs> which was probably for somebody with my talent the only way that I was ever going to learn something basic. But God bless Sister Camille Cecile for $2 a week 
I had an individual lesson and a lesson in music theory that when I went to Stanford, you know, years later, I realized I had done everything in the college introductory class. And within two years, she had me playing Bartok and then Haydn and Mozart. These other things that just opened up possibilities to me. And I became, you know, an, uh, the first person in my family ever to go to college. I was able to go to Stanford on a scholarship. And I was able, you know, not without the usual difficulties, to make eventually, after many, many trials and tribulations, to make a living as an artist. And this seems to me an incontestably precious thing in life, to be able to make a living doing something you love. Now, as a poet, as an Angelino, as a Latin, you know, I'm unprecedented as the NEA chair. Uh, I mean, it's tended to be a, a position on the average that's been done by lawyers. And I find myself in one of the weirdest jobs in the country, which is running the Federal Arts Agency of a country that's not entirely sure that it wanted a federal arts agency. Uh, if you don't believe this, why else did it take us nearly two centuries to create one? And then, you know, a series of arguments about it ever since. Now, maybe the arguments are natural. I mean, it, maybe the arguments are society's way of trying to figure out, you know, what it, you know, what it is, what it wants. Uh, but we are the largest funder of arts and arts education in the United States. We are the only organization which supports all of the arts uh, in all of the states and jurisdictions. And we have had an enormous impact on American culture. We've given over 120,000 grants in our 42-year history. And because of this money, it is now true in the United States that almost every town has a theater, a symphony, a dance company, a museum, that secondary museums and lecture series and arts education programs have been able to grow in this country. And our power is really twofold. And part of it is not so much money as validation. We have these scrupulous, I think, expert panels that uh, look through thousands of applications to find the best ones. And so when an individual or an organization gets an NEA grant, it's a kind of validation of the quality. But m perhaps even more important, they can take that validation and the, the amount of money we, we give them, and it becomes a catalyst for growth. Every dollar that we give generates seven or eight additional dollars. And so this has enormous impact in our society. And what it does is not subsidize the arts. I guarantee you we do not have enough money to subsidize anyone. But we do have enough money to get people started at creating organizations and partnerships with their own communities to serve them. And this seems to me not simply a legitimate public role, but a necessary one, if you accept the following simple proposition, that a great nation deserves great art, that you cannot have a nation uh, which has a civilization without having art and culture be an integral part of that civilization. And in a democracy, those things should be available to every citizen. Now, it is a, a sacred ritual for arts officials to come before you and tell you how bad things are. I'm afraid I'll have to disappoint you this evening. I'm happy to say that the NEA is in an extremely good position. We have just gotten the largest increase in 28 years, uh, and we have done it uh, in a way which was completely without divisiveness. It was bicameral, bipartisan. Everyone wanted to be part of this. And we, I think, have created a national consensus about the necessity of public support for arts in arts education. And I don't think we've, uh, at the NEA has been able to say, make that claim really for the last quarter century. So I think that we have put the culture wars behind us and we are moving towards perhaps not a golden age, but at least a silver one uh, in terms of what we can accomplish. And that's why I want to talk about what is it that we want to accomplish? What 
is it that we should be trying to do right now? Because we have in this country, in culture, an enormous interlocking series of problems that no one is seriously addressing. Uh, It is not merely a series of cultural problems, but civic and political and social problems that grow out of this. Now, there's any number of ways that I could talk about this, but let me just propose an experiment. I would love to take a group, either of American college students, or maybe simply American adults, and give them a two-part test. The first part would be, how many American Idol finalists, NBA players, or Major League Baseball players can you name? I think we would get hundreds of names on that list. Then the second part would be, how many living painters, poets, sculptors, architects, composers, choreographers, classical musicians, artists of all sorts can you name? And even worse, how many physicists, chemists, biologists, medical researchers, philosophers, theologians, anthropologists, social thinkers can you name? I would bet the average of the second column would be zero. You're listening to Dana Joya, chairman of the National Endowment for the Arts. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. Tomorrow, Monday, April 7th, Socalo presents An Evening with Luis Valdez, moderated by Oscar Garza, editor-in-chief of Tu Ciudad magazine. Valdez visits Socalo on the 30th anniversary of the premiere of his groundbreaking musical, Zoot Suit. On Tuesday, April 8th, don't miss Sacramento Bee columnist Daniel Weintraub's take on Arnold Schwarzenegger. The California governor has squandered much of the advantage he once enjoyed. His final three years in the job will help determine whether Schwarzenegger is on the cutting edge of a new movement or just a one-time phenomenon in U.S. politics. And on Thursday, April 10th, Socolow invites Republican Senator Chuck Hagel. Drawing on personal insights from his years as a political insider, Hagel tackles both foreign and domestic issues, including a candid examination of the Iraq War and the political deadlock that he says is threatening America's position in the world. Admission to these and all Socolo events is free, but reservations are required. For more information and to hear past programs and lectures, just click on our website, socalola.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. We'll return to Dana Joya in a moment. Stay tuned to Socolo Radio. Where do you go when you're ticked off about something you hear on National Public Radio? Well, the NPR's Ombudsman. Lisa Shepard is with us on the next edition of AirTalk here on 89.3 KPCC. We'll talk with her about the kinds of internal looks NPR does on its own news coverage. Also, update on the latest developments in the Democratic presidential primary race. AirTalk, weekday mornings at 10 here on KPCC. Every day on All Things Considered, we bring you novel ideas and remarkable stories. This is really a new development. Oh my God, I will never forget that. You can't teach that kind of stuff, you just have it. We can shock them a little too. Something new, something unexpected, maybe even unforgettable on All Things Considered from NPR News. Weekday afternoon starting at 3.30 on 89.3 KPCC. Think Elections. Think election coverage without the hype and without the hollering. Think 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org. You can now get KPCC and NPR News on your cell phone or PDA. Go to KPCC.org where you'll find information on NPR Mobile from KPCC. Oh, and we're also still here at 89.3. Programming on 89.3 KPCC is supported by the California Endowment, working to improve the health and health care of California's diverse communities. At the California Endowment, community matters. I'm Claudia Vasquez. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, 
LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. We now return to Dana Joya, chairman of the National Endowment for the Arts. We live in a society, in an economy, which does not recognize, value, or support the arts at any public level. Now, I don't think Americans are dumber than they used to be, though I could quote you statistics that say otherwise. But I do think our culture, our public culture, is incontestably dumber. When I was put with my grandparents, you know, because both of my parents worked, they couldn't speak English, so they watched things like the Dinah Shore show, the Perry Como music hour, Ed Sullivan show. Looking at those shows, I heard Yasha Heifetz, Richard Tucker, Arthur Rubinstein, Robert Merrill. I saw John Steinbeck, Robert Frost, Mary McCarthy, Carl Sandburg, because they were assumed to have a place at the table in public culture. You know, right next to Senior Wenceslas with his hand puppet, uh, you might have Mary Costa singing an aria from La Boheme. And for jazz, from Louis Armstrong and Dizzy Gillespie to Duke Ellington and Dave Brubeck, you know, they were part of American general culture. Now, virtually everything you see on television is a product placement for a form of entertainment they want to sell you, usually something that's being opened in the next week or so. You know, the sense that there is any responsibility for bringing a broader range of culture is gone. Now, why should you worry about that if you're not an artist? Now, obviously, if you're an artist, it's bad, you know, because you don't get the recognition. But I'll just point out one of, I think, six or seven really major consequences to this. We are providing the next generation of Americans with virtually no positive role models outside of entertainment and sports and politics, which is really, as we know in Hollywood, entertainment for ugly people. Uh, and if you think of all the possibilities of life that a 15-year-old in Los Angeles might consider, not simply the arts, but the sciences, the professions, all of the valuable ways in which one might spend a life, and to replace them simply with varieties of commercial celebrity, I think that we have both impoverished our youth imaginatively and spiritually. We live in a country, and this embarrasses me to say, in which only 70% of teenagers graduate from high school. And even that number is artificially inflated because you're measuring people from their junior year on. Only about you know, two-thirds of kids finish high school. I mean, a one-third failure rate. Now, if you don't graduate from high school in this country, not only will you not do as well in the job market or economically, you will live seven years less. Talk about at-risk youth. I would make a very simple proposition, which is the health of a society is probably best measured by the potential they realize in the next generation. Great societies raise and nourish the future. I think that what we're doing is simply letting the future happen, letting the future be exploited by innumerable commercial enterprises rather than training them, in a sense, for the myriad possibilities of life. Now, artists and intellectuals, us, everybody in this room, we're partially to blame. And we're partially to blame for at least two reasons. First of all, we've become so comfortable talking among each other that we've forgotten how to talk and address the rest of society. You know, if you get five actors together, you can talk about theater and this, that, the other. You never have to really explain why theater matters, you know, why society needs theater. In fact, you might even forget how to explain this. We've grown so comfortable with a kind of internal conversation that we've disengaged largely from the rest of society. This country has very few 
public intellectuals. When you have talking heads that have predictable partisan viewpoints on cable TV, but people, in a sense, who can engage ideas seriously in a public idiom, there's very few. And because of that, the very intellectual and creative energy that our society needs, it isn't getting. It's like a society, like an individual, being fed on junk food. Secondly, we've done an enormous disservice because over the last 30 years, we have let cities, counties, and states dismantle arts education in schools while the federal government really stood by indifferently, which means that the 60 million kids in school have an incomplete education. Now, one of the ways that we let them do it is that we have convinced the average person that the purpose of arts education is to produce more artists. It really isn't. That's a byproduct. The purpose of arts education is to produce complete human beings. You cannot have 60 million kids go through a system which is preparing them primarily for standardized testing and entry-level jobs and feel that you've done a complete job. Right now, uh, I would say in, 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 this, in L.A. schools, certainly this kind of school that I went to, there's really three paths to survival. You can be good at academics. Some kids do that. Some kids just find it motivating. You can be good at sports, or you can essentially join a gang. You know, it can be traditional gang, or it can be kind of a different kind of gang. Do we only want three doorways for the next generation? Kids develop talents in different ways. They are differently talented. If you take a 14-year-old who feels like all 14, 15-year-olds do, that somehow he's, he or she's no longer connected to society, to you know, to his or her parents, feels alienated, and you get them in a play, they go through a process. The first pro- you know, part of the process is they say, gee, these people are as weird as I am. <laughs> then suddenly you realize, well, you're not really weird. You just have a kind of different set of talents from everybody else. And then you begin to set, realize that you have created this kind of social connection with these people which is intense and meaningful, which awakens all kinds of of energy in you. And finally, when you put the play on, you realize that the very people that you felt alienated from applaud you because they recognize finally your gifts. This is true in music, it's true in the visual arts, it's true, uh, you, know, you know, across the types of arts education. Now, this doesn't mean that we want these people necessarily to become professional actors. God knows we have enough of those, though some will inevitably be bitten by the bug. But what it does is it gives someone a positive sense of their own capabilities, a positive form of social interaction, and a connection to their community that's truthful because it's based on their own deepest identity. If you shut all of those things off, one by one, as we have in this country, literally without apology, you are going to lose one-third of the generation the way we do. And the other two-thirds are probably not going to be developing themselves as fully as they could unless they're fortunate to come from an affluent household. Arts education in the United States has become a function of parents' income. And that seems to me a great failure for an affluent democracy. Now, there is also, I think, a civic and economic cost to this. In the 21st century, the United States is competing increasingly ineffectively in a global economy. We will not succeed as a nation through cheap labor, cheap raw materials. If this country is to prosper in the 21st century, it's going to be through creativity, innovation, and ingenuity. And I fail to see how that can happen in a society which does not nourish and train the creativity of its youth. Secondly, 
there is an increasingly large and incontestable body of evidence demonstrating that people who are engaged in the arts are engaged in their communities at overwhelmingly higher levels. If you were a mayor, if you are a governor, the kind of citizens you want are arts participants. Now, you can take this even down to, the, to almost one of the primary arts, I think maybe one of the, pro- the most uh, basic art for democracy, which is reading, reading literature. Uh, we've published a series of reports at the NEA, one's called Reading at Risk, and, and one that came out a few months ago is called To Read or Not to Read, in which we've taken all of the data, all of the reliable data that exists in the United States through government or private studies on a national level, and have demonstrated the impact of reading. Now, you'd think that if we took 30, 40 studies done by different agencies in different ways, that even under the the best scenario, that these numbers would disagree with each other. The alarming fact is that they are all consistent, and they tell the same story. And the story is this. Americans are reading less. Because they read less, they read less well. Because they read less well, they do less well in the educational system. We are in the process in the United States of producing the first generation in our history that's less well-educated than their parents. Now, I mean, to me, this is a, an abandonment of, of the whole American mythos of self-improvement. Uh, because they do less well in school, they do less well in the job market and economically. The number one problems for new employers in the United States, new employees can't read, new employees can't write. And in fact, for those people who can't even read above a basic level, 55% of those people end up unemployed. And even on a further level, they overwhelmingly are more likely to end up in the criminal justice system. Only 3% of people in US prisons read at a proficiency level. Because they read less well, you know, because in a sense they, they don't develop these things, they are also less likely to engage in personal positive behavior, however you want to measure it. And we can measure it many different ways. You would not think it, uh, but it is overwhelmingly demonstrable that people that read exercise more. People that read play sports more. They belong to civic organizations more. They do volunteer and charity work at nearly four times the level of non-readers. Now, when I saw this data, I said, well, wait, we have to be measuring something else. We're measuring income. We're measuring education. If you take the poorest people in the United States who read, they do volunteer and charity work at twice the level of people who don't read. So what does it say to us? It says something that we know. Each of us knows this, that when you read, when you engage in the arts, It awakens something inside of you that does two things. The first is that it increases your sense of your own personal destiny. But secondly, it makes the lives of other people more real to you. It creates a heightened sense of yourself as an individual, but it also brings you maybe, and especially if you're reading novels or imaginative literature, in which you follow the stories, the lives of people and the dailiness of their existence socially, economically. Maybe a man understanding how a woman thinks, a woman understanding how a man thinks, a person understanding how somebody from a different country, from a different race, thinks and feels that this imaginative exercise, this meditative exercise makes you understand that other people have an inner life as complicated as your own. And so if you have a society in which tens of millions of people, guided by pleasure, no less, undertake these types of contemplations and meditations, you have a society which builds not only its imaginative capability, its intellectual capability, but its compassion and its humanity. And that's what the arts do for us. They awaken our humanity, they enhance, they enlarge, they refine it. And this 
gives you at least the possibilities of transformation. If we lose this, except for an affluent elite, we lose the very basis of an active and healthy democracy. If we take this out of the educational system of people, especially working people, we are perpetuating a class society in the worst way. So I would recommend that we think about at least three things. The first is insisting on the necessity of arts and arts education in our schools and in our communities as a way of both developing individual citizens and building civic life. Secondly, that as artists and intellectuals, as serious citizens, that we try to enlarge the public conversation, which is essentially our media culture, so that arts and ideas have a place at the table. That maybe serious ideas get at least as much news coverage in Los Angeles as the traffic on one highway. This is not much to ask, is it? And that finally, as citizens, we insist that the government, federal, state, and local, has a responsibility to fund arts and arts education, not as a luxury, but as the necessary cost of building the society in which we want to live. Because I don't really know what it means to live in a free society unless part of it is a conviction that we can gradually build a consensus to create this society, not that we've inherited, but in which we want to inhabit. That's what I wanted to say to you. I hope I haven't been too preachy, but I, I feel these things. You're listening to Dana Joya, Chairman of the National Endowment for the Arts. For information or to listen to past broadcasts, just click on our website, socalola.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. We'll return to Dana Joya in a moment. Stay tuned to Socalo Radio. 89.3 KPCC reaches an audience of over half a million informed, active, and educated listeners. To learn how your organization or business can reach this audience, call Julie at 213-621-3592 or send an email to underwriting at kpcc.org. Weekdays on 89.3 KPCC. This is Talk of the Nation. I'm Neil Cummings. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. Remember the good old days? This is Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Bank of America has announced that it... Good afternoon. I'm Pat Morrison. It's something of an article of faith in business in Southern California that the cost of doing... More NPR and local news on 89.3 KPCC. I'm David Lazarus. Coming up on Monday, Pat Morrison speaks with Jeffrey Sachs, author of Commonwealth, Economics for a Crowded Planet, a look at how environmental sustainability can be achieved amid a sprawling population. Also, Pat takes a look at the upcoming testimony by General David Petraeus, the top military commander in Iraq, and Ryan Crocker, the ambassador in Baghdad. That's at 1 p.m. Monday on 89.3 KPCC. Programming on 89.3 KPCC is supported by the Skirball Cultural Center, presenting Bob Dylan's American Journey, 1956 through 1966. Organized by Experience Music Project, this exhibition charts the musician's transformation from Midwestern teen to folk troubadour to rock innovator. You can enjoy historical artifacts, key memorabilia, and multimedia stations playing classic tracks and rare footage. Bob Dylan's American Journey, on view at the Skirball through June 8th. Information at skirball.org. I'm Claudia Vasquez. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. Now it's time for questions from the Socalo audience for Dana Joya, Chairman of the National Endowment for the Arts. 
Oh, hi, I'm Jordan Gravely from Levantine Cultural Center. It's LA's Pan Cultural Center for the Middle East. What's interesting about the arts and culture uh, fact that they are gestures of peace, of diversity, of tolerance. It's just the opposite of what I view as our war economy or our American empire. So I'm, I'm wondering if you feel some pressure in Washington where there's a lot of policymakers, there's a lot of uh, business that goes on that has to do with maintaining military bases and spending lots of money on occupying Iraq and Afghanistan. It just seems like everything we do abroad in terms of our military and our foreign policy well, is totally the opposite. Well, well, yeah, well, the, well the, the, first of all, I, we don't feel any pressure. You know, we're a semi-independent public agency, and so I, you know, we have fought very hard over the years in the sense of, of existing and making our decisions outside of, a, of a, the political system. That being said, you know, we have been conducting an argument or initiating a discussion, however you want to say it, in Washington, really for the last five years that I've been there, which is to say that the necessity for cultural diplomacy. You cannot talk to the rest of the world simply through money and power, through politics and economics. Now, those are things that necessarily go on through nations, but there need to be other types of discussions. And I'm happy to say that after considerable debate and, and lobbying on this, we have really in the last uh, about a year and a half had this enormous growth you know, in these programs and that the State Department has been co-funding them with us. In fact, I just got back from Egypt where we have launched you know, probably the largest cultural exchange with Egypt in decades, maybe ever. We've got a whole series of projects with Mexico. That's really one of the reasons that I'm in uh, Los Angeles this week. We've uh, got projects with, with Russia, with China, with Pakistan, with Greece, with Spain. Now, there are 180 nations in the world, so this is a great beginning, but it's incomplete. But I'm, I am really pleased to say that we seem to have broken finally the roadblock and have created federal partnerships to, to initiate these. I think that you could probably spend as much money as we are in the entire United States on these programs, and domestic programs support has to come first. But I really do feel heartened. I mean, we've made more progress, I think, in the last two years than we probably have in the last 10 years. I'm Sarah Cannon, I'm the director of Museum Education and Tours for the Cultural Affairs Department at, in this park, Barnsell Park. And I heard you talking about this kind of cultural paucity of programming for our students, for our youth. They're going to grow up without culture, without anything meaningful, like we had in our generation. And I have to say that as a museum community, part of the museum community in Los Angeles at least, there are so many museums, so many programs for kids. Very grateful that this kind of programming is going on and on in all the museums of Southern California. At least I could tell you to take heart that we're, we're doing as much as we can in music and, and the visual arts, performing arts, to, pro to provide the students and youth of Los Angeles, at least, with great, great, great programming that I'm sure is going on all over the country. And I don't feel, I think there's a lot of hope for the United States in our arts programming. Yeah, well, the, you're right, but I want to see if I can put it in, in a larger context. It seems to me that there's three types of arts education. The most fundamental is for someone learning the art from the inside, learning to play an instrument, learning to sing, learning to act, learning to dance, draftsmanship, learning to sculpt, etc., etc. That requires pretty much daily or you know, certainly weekly instruction and practice, which used to go on in schools. That is primarily what's been removed from the American education system. Then there are after-school programs that they do outside of the curriculum. Those are pretty healthy in the country because there are so many institutions. And, and finally, there's just the experience of art. We've created a program, I don't know if you've heard of it, called Shakespeare in American Communities. We created it out of nothing, with no money. It is now the largest, probably, theater program in history. We've got 65 theater companies employing 2,000 artists that have been to 1,800 municipalities, many of them many times. We have reached about over a million kids into a, a professional performance of Shakespeare, as well as, a, you know, paying adults. We try to sell about half of us a theater out, then we fill the rest of it with, with kids and their teachers for free. 
70% of those kids have never seen a spoken play. I guarantee you that much higher level of them have never seen dance, been to a symphony concert, been to opera, heard it live jazz, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, we've got 60 million kids in this country, and we're not serving them. The other thing that I would point out, and it's really what, it's the other side of what you're saying, is that we have the people, we have the institutions, we have the programs. They're right down the street, in some cases, from the schools. You know, we have a country in which two million people, two million adults, declare their primary occupation as artist. They are not unemployed, but they are underemployed. We are losing their energy exactly when it's needed. And so, you know, I wish we had more public frameworks to make these institutions part of the daily curriculum of schools. And that's really what I'm complaining about. Hi, I'm Danielle Brazel, Executive Director of Arts for LA. I have a two-part question. My question is, how have you been able, has it been through your argument of the arts and access to the arts creates a better democracy that has gotten this incredible bipartisan support? And if so, where does the economic impact for the arts argument lie with policymakers? And the second part is, Americans for the Arts recently unveiled Arts Vote, where they have gotten presidential candidates to create policy statements on the arts. And how effective do you feel that may be in getting more support from the arts for the new administration? The economic impact of the arts is enormous but I feel it's secondary. The argument that we have to make in our society is for the intrinsic and irreplaceable value of the arts. You can get an economic impact by putting a bowling alley in, you know, by putting a car wash in, just as well as a ballet company, and they tend to be cheaper. What we need to make people understand is what art can do that nothing else can do as well. I was in California just before, you know, I'm a Californian. I was living up in Sonoma County at that point when the California Arts Council was taken from 31 million to 21, then down to zero. My first weeks in office, I had to argue with the California State Senate and Assembly about the survival of the California Arts Council. And I threatened to withhold federal funds if they did not maintain a minimal level of funding for it. I know I'm, I was successful because they funded it exactly to the dollar level that I put as the minimum. But what I saw was the art advocacy, especially in LA, where the art advocates would come up, would attack the legislators, would talk about how Philistine people were, how important creativity was, blah, 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 blah. And what I heard was a negative message, a divisive attitude, a kind of partisan stance. When I went to Washington, people said, go fight the good fight. And they meant well, but fighting is the wrong metaphor. What we've done in Washington is reconciliation. We have created a way of talking about what we do in a positive way that's inclusive rather than exclusive, that's non-divisive, and refuses to play uh, partisan politics. Then we've embodied it in actual programs. You know, we have programs now that reach every community in the United States. Whereas before, things kind of fell where they fell. And we had communities representing over 80 million people that never got a cent. And so I like to think that we have insisted on art as art, have supported excellence, and we've done it in a way of unprecedented democratic access. And that's what we do. I can go to any congressman's office in the, on Capitol Hill. I can ask them to name any high school in their district. And then I can give them the name of a teacher that we're working with. It changes the discussion. Now, there's not, that's not to say there aren't other ways of doing it. It's not them versus us. We're all us. And that's really what it's been about, I think. I have a question about uh, supporting the nonprofit organizations that actually engage in the youth arts education. I used to work for one. Remember in 2004, I started seeing almost every week in papers, 
and other organizations that went out of business because they could not get any money and they had been around for many years. And that's the same thing that we wondered and it actually happened to us too after 33 years. So my question is this, is there or should there be some kind of a policy or system in place? Right now, if banks get in trouble, the government rescues them. If credit loan companies get in trouble, the government rescues them. But if organizations who've been around forever doing this with almost nothing, should there be some kind of system or policy that will rescue them? Well, you know, I'll sound hard-hearted, but I think, you know, if a private sector business gets into trouble, we should let it go bankrupt. I don't think you want a system, I really don't, where you guarantee everybody's survival indefinitely. That's a formula for mediocrity, and I really believe that. What we do at the NEA is we have open applications. We have independent panels. You know, these are artists, administrators, teachers, in some cases, you know, uh, critics or reviewers uh, that are specialized in discipline. They make the recommendations on what to fund and not on the basis of excellence. And then we temper it somewhat just so it's balanced, just, you know, that we don't, it, everything isn't going to a few cities. I think that's the right way of doing it and that, that we should fund the best. And it sounds hard, you know, hard-hearted, but I, you know, I don't think it's a bad thing if occasionally arts organizations go out of business. Why? Because there are always new ones coming in. And it's part of, I think, the, the nature of culture. That being said, you know, I think that we sh- need to do a better job supporting institutions. I think we need to, to give much more money than we do. But I don't think that you want a system where you know, every organization is funded forever. I, th- I don't think that that would create the healthiest, most vital culture. Good evening, my name is Dorsey Dujan and I'm the chair of the Arts and Culture Committee for the Silver Lake Neighborhood Council. And we've been producing concerts in the park in the summertime and also a kite festival. And I wanted to ask you, are there other ways that we can get support for bringing events to the community that your organization can help with? Other ways than? Other than, other than funding. I mean, I know that's a, an issue that... Yeah. Well, you know, the thing that we... Actually, the thing that we do... Funding, I think, is almost, in a curious way, nobody will believe me with this, is secondary activity for the NEA. Our primary activity really is to create partnerships, which allow, in a sense, many hands to make light work. Our money is simply a way of creating the partnership. You know, we give over probably 2,100 grants a year across many, many categories. You know, you might, you might apply in presenting, you might apply in um, basically our, our civic categories. If it's a music, you know, uh, program or whatever, you might apply. There's many, many, many ways you can apply. So, but it's, you know, so it's hard for me to say, but if you look on our website, it, it, you know, or you simply call one of our directors, or you could even talk to two of our directors tonight, they could, they could, in a sense, work with you in terms of telling you the category in which you'd have the best chances of success. And I think that's really what you're asking, you know, which is uh, one of the things that's disturbed me is that we get so many applications in arts education that it's actually the hardest category to get a grant in. It's almost twice as hard as the other categories. And so what I've done with this new increase that we've got, I gave a disproportionate amount of it to arts education. Because I don't think that, you know, that we should make that our most severe category, because that's actually the one we probably want to get the, the, the money more broadly, you know, broadly dispersed. But you know, the fact is that some, some organizations always can be happier than another. So you try to do what you do well. I'm just a secular humanist. I find in times like times of great loss, like September 11th, I tend to turn to the arts. And I know I'm not alone. Religion offers a lot of forums for people to come together. But I'm wondering if you're having conversations at high levels about, are there ways to bring the public together for those kinds of forums that are not religious, that are really about the arts in times of emergency and crisis? I think you've answered your own question. Most of the arts are civic in nature. You know, if you go back to the origins of theater, theater was originally a religious festival that became a civic festival in which every citizen of Athens attended. And what they would see in front of them are these dramas about the issues they faced, you know, these arguments that the culture was having enacted in front of them 
which not only clarified them, but also acknowledged that these issues existed. And it was seen by the Greeks, by the Athenians, as a necessary part of their civic culture. They took the new soldiers and made them sit in the center. So they understood, as it were, what Athens represented. And behind them, they put all the diplomats from other cities and other countries. It was, in a sense, a basic civic statement. So, you know, I think that, you know, art is one of those things which people turn to in times of need, of stress, of uncertainty. And the power of art is that it can speak to our sorrow as powerfully as it can inside our joy. What art does is speak to us in the fullness of our humanity. And we complete the work of art. We bring our whole lives to a book, to an evening of music, to an evening in the theater. And that's why each of us experiences it somewhat differently. Because it's a kind of of the most extraordinarily intimate and complex conversation humanity has invented. And when that conversation needs to be one of consolation, that is art's great power. You've been listening to Dana Joya, Chairman of the National Endowment for the Arts. This is Socalo Radio, the honor home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. Socalo Radio is supported by a generous grant from the James Irvine Foundation and by the California Endowment. Catch us again next Sunday, or we'll see you at one of our free live events around town. For more information, go to SocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A.org. The executive producer for Socolo Radio is Peter Stenzel. Douglas Gary is our engineer. Thank you for tuning in. Commercial radio is paid for with commercials. Public radio is paid for by the public. That would be you. Public radio thrives only when listeners like you decide to become contributing members. Those individual contributions...